We the people. We the people. We the people of the United States. We the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. To ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. You're listening to Constitution Thursday. Over the last six weeks, the convention has discussed over and over again the single question dividing them. Should representation in the new government be proportional, or should each state have an equal vote? The smaller states have reached the breaking point. They are prepared to not just walk out of the convention, but will openly talk about doing the unthinkable. The large states, with their southern slave allies, South Carolina and Georgia, hold a bare majority in the repeated votes. As the summer begins, some delegates have other obligations that require them to absent themselves from Philadelphia. Alexander Hamilton, after his embarrassing speech advocating the royal government, is compelled to leave when a friend needs his assistance. Among the Georgia delegation, Major William Pierce leaves to fight a duel, while William Few had left to attend Congress. That will leave Abraham Baldwin to decide how Georgia would proceed when the issue is voted on again. James Madison will lose his legendary call and find himself reduced using personal insults to try and make his point. But before all of that, the entire convention had to endure hour upon hour of Luther Martin, the least regarded man at the convention. And that, not to put too fine a point on it, might be the understatement of this entire enterprise known as Constitution Thursday. Enduring Luther Martin, who I will no doubt screw up and call Martin Luther at some point during this exegesis, was like enduring a round of water torture or sitting through the most boring play you can possibly imagine and having to do so with a smile on your face. Luther Martin was well known for being pompous. He was ill-mannered. He was, a, like many people, a lawyer. But for some reason, he gained none of the speaking skills that go with being a lawyer of that era. He was a terrible speaker. In fact, he wasn't just bad at speaking. He was horrifying at speaking. In fact, he is going to speak for three hours on what is reported as being the hottest day so far of the month of June in Philadelphia, with the windows closed and the doors sealed so that no one can hear what's going on. Luther Martin is going to attack the idea of proportional representation. He represents, obviously, a very small state. He is from Maryland. And his speech reiterates many of the same points that other people have already made about the unfairness of proportional representation to the small states, the dangers that the small states face, so forth and so on. But in doing so, his speech is so bad, and I just don't even think that we have 
a way to compare it. Imagine, if you will, someone who stands up, speaks for three solid hours, essentially making the same point over and over and over and over and over and over and over again, but does so in a way that is so offensive and so crude that even the people that agree with him are shuffling in their seats, fidgeting, doodling, glaring at him, and almost wishing with their minds that they could make him blow up. He's pissing them off as much as he's making anybody else mad. And believe me, he's making James Madison furious. And he goes on and on and on. And by the time he sits down, the convention is just exasperated by Luther Martin and his harangue, his screed, as it were, which served no purpose in the sense of advancing any type of, any type of conciliation or compromise, nor did it serve any purpose of anything other than just making everybody really, really mad. Luther Martin was known for his, his sloppy dress. He was a terrible dresser. You can almost, as you read the accounts of that day, you almost get the impression that even what limited habits passed for for hygiene in that era, which we, you know, we wouldn't have anything to do with that at this point. But but even the limited habits that they had then, you, you almost get the impression that he didn't follow those. He was coarse. He was terrible. It was not. Uh, some of the comments make it questionable as to whether or not he'd been drinking. There were just any number of things that just really got under everybody's skin like sandpaper that day. And keep in mind the convention for the last two weeks, since June 11th, has literally discussed nothing other than should it be proportional representation or equal representation, at least in the Senate. They've sort of agreed that there will be two houses. They're going to go with the Virginia plan in basic principles. There's going to be two houses. The, the lower house, the House of Representatives, will be what will become the House of Representatives. It's not that now. Will be proportionally represented with the three-fifths compromise. But this Senate thing is just giving people fits. The small states, of course, feel that if the big states get a proportional representation in the Senate, that they will just simply run roughshod over the smaller states. It gets really, really personal and really mean. This is, we, again, we have this image of the framers being these great men of honor, and, and they were, but even great men of honor have their moments when perhaps they are not at their best. In a few minutes, we're going to see James Madison come unglued and make an accusation that is so far beyond the pale that the biggest surprise is that given given the dueling culture of the day, that no duel was even challenged. It, you almost think that there might have been at some point. The, the Luther Martin speech is simply a precursor of his attitude. He will end up being an anti-federalist. He will not sign the Constitution. In fact, he'll walk out of the convention a little bit later. He will argue 
debate. He'll break the secrecy vow. He will just, in, in every way he possibly can, make everybody just as angry as they can possibly be. And believe me, it's not going to take much to push people over the edge here. It's very hot. They've been arguing the same point for weeks upon end. And there are rumors floating under the surface. Now, remember, all of these guys are staying in the same inns. They're, they're eating at the same places. They're going to the same parties. They're enjoying the same amenities of Philadelphia in, in the non-work hours. There are conversations going on. We don't have any record of those conversations, but they are going on. They are happening. And there are rumors now swirling underneath all of this. Tired of being run roughshod over by the big states, by the big three, Massachusetts, Virginia, and Pennsylvania. And they have reached the point where if they can't get equal representation in the Senate, they're going to walk out. If they walk out, the convention ends. There's no new national government. And of course, all of the difficulties that we've talked about in the past are not resolved. And at the end of the day, we have no new national government. Martin Luther's speech, sorry, there I did it, Luther Martin's speech is noted amongst several of the delegates, as I said, as being, well, one said that it was calculated to induce sleep. Others said that he exhausted the politeness of the convention. He's careless in both his dress and his speech. He chose the hottest day to begin the lecture to the delegates on the rights of free men and of free states. At least two delegates reported that his speech wandered so much that it was, it was hard to even follow, let alone write down what he was saying. Several observers suggested that he might have been imbibing a bit too much, and they wondered if that affects his, uh, his lawyering. But Luther Martin, who was also the Maryland Attorney General, told the delegates in his speech, if you could condense that three hours down into any salient point, told the delegates that it was the duty of any general government to protect the state governments and that its powers ought to be kept within narrow limits. He said, quote, We are proceeding in forming this government as if there were no state governments at all. Federal government is equality of votes. States may surrender this right, but if they do, their liberties are lost. When he finally sat down, everybody was so irritated, so angry, so frustrated, and just plain irritable that most of the delegates just stared at him with hate in rays pouring out of their eyes. It's nothing people hate worse than having the obvious pointed out to them. And even as Luther Martin was railing about states' rights, George Washington was more or less in the process of composing, at least in his mind, a letter that he will send in a couple of days. And this letter will address this issue of states' rights over the national interests. And George Washington will use a very interesting word about states' rights people. The founder of our country, the father of our nation, the leader of our continental army, a man who has seen combat, fire, death, the man who will become our first president, and perhaps the most venerated American of all time, will refer to these men who are 
haranguing about states' rights as demagogues. He does not like them. He thinks that they are self-centered and that they are putting their state's interests ahead of those of the nation. And he hopes, he hopes that good fortune will smile upon them and some compromise will be reached. But he fears that this state's rights issue will continue to divide the convention so that it will hit the point where it simply does not accomplish what it's set out to accomplish. And he knows, General Washington knows, that they are literally at that point. We today don't really understand. We don't grasp this. I, I was talking yesterday about the fact that as you read these accounts of these days leading up to the July 4th break at the convention, as we hear it in our modern history, the convention debated. They had a little stickiness about, you know, the three-fifths thing and the representation thing. But after that, things were pretty smooth and they hammered this whole thing out and off they went. And some people wanted the Bill of Rights. Some people didn't. You know, just the typical stuff. When you finally come to the realization, as I did this week, of how perilously close, dangerously close, ununderstandably close this convention was to ending. It changes a lot of your perspective on how you see what's going forward from here. When you hear the arguments, and the arguments over the next few days at this convention will turn very personal, very mean, spirited. And eventually the small states will make their point in a way that had never been spoken of before. You begin to realize how fortunate, how fortuitous, and how, how much providence paid a role, played a role in, in achieving the Constitution of the United States. This arguing, this bickering, is really just getting started. But Luther Martin's speech causes Benjamin Franklin, who recognizes the fact that this is out of control, that this is going to be a problem, causes Benjamin Franklin to, in one of the rare occasions, speak himself. He doesn't write his little notepad. He, he actually speaks himself. And he recommends to the convention, he makes a motion, that each session start with a prayer. He does this because he believes fervently in, in God. He says, I have lived long, sir, a long time. The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth, that God governs in the affairs of men. And if a sparrow cannot fall to the ground without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid, without his concurring aid? Shall we succeed in this political building? no better than the builders of Babel? He is deeply concerned. And it is his motion that causes so many of the delegates to kind of take a step back for a moment and go, wait a sec. If we have reached the point where we have to pray before every session, 
what are we actually saying about what we're doing here? The motion will actually be defeated. It will be defeated on two grounds. Number one, they don't have any money to pay a, a minister. Think about that for just a moment. They don't have any funds to pay the minister. Number two, Colonel Alexander Hamilton, who just a few days before had given his unfortunate speech advocating a royalty, observed that approving prayers this late in the convention would, quote, lead the public to believe that the embarrassing, embarrassments and dissensions within the convention had suggested this measure. In other words, people are going to hear we're going to start praying now. They're going to think we're failing. And so they decide not to adopt this prayer measure, primarily because they don't have the money to pay a pastor. Isn't that odd? When this day ends, Colonel Hamilton will leave. The reason he leaves, he says, is because he's neglecting his family, he's neglecting his law practice, and he wishes to check in on those things back in New York. There are those who believe that the reason he leaves is because he's frustrated. His, his royalty speech did not go over well. And there are those that know him that say that he is angry because he has no influence, no input, and his, all of his accomplishments in the American Revolution have led to nothing as far as he's concerned, as far as influence in this goes. The real reason, however, that he leaves might be something else. Major William Pierce is also a delegate to the convention. He is from Georgia. He is, actually, he is actually a legal client of Hamilton's, and he has gotten himself involved in an affair of honor. We don't know much about William Pierce. He's, he's virtually a non-entity. But we do know that he had to leave the convention. So he leaves from the Georgia delegation. Hamilton leaves from the New York delegation. The, uh, the duel, apparently, that, that Pierce is going to fight is in New York. And the presumption is that Hamilton is going to be his second. At the same time, the Georgia convention, the Georgia delegation, uh, William Liu is a member of Congress, and Congress is getting ready to meet. And he feels that that is more important than the, this convention. And so the Georgia delegation goes from a team of four to a team of two. And of the two men who are left, one is by the name of Abraham Baldwin. And if you've ever been to Georgia, you know Baldwin, Georgia. The Abraham Baldwin uh, Agricultural School. He's a very famous Georgian about whom most people know absolutely nothing. But this simple man, left behind by those who felt they had more important things to do, is about to change the course of the entire convention by himself. And so for two weeks, the debate the votes, the interminable votes over and over again have taken place. 
Should representation in the Senate be equal or should be proportional? In the large states, Madison's Virginia, Massachusetts, and Pennsylvania, combined with their two southern allies, South Carolina, which Pickney and his three-fifths compromise, and Wilson's three-fifth compromise, and the other state is Georgia. Now, Georgia is kind of an interesting wild card in all of this. Now, keep in mind that New Hampshire's delegates have not arrived at the convention. Rhode Island did not send any delegates. The large states continue to win this thing, 6-5, 5-4, over and over again. If they could just break that southern, that, that small state southern deadlock, the small states feel like they could win and get equal representation in the Senate. And if they don't get it, they just feel like they can't protect themselves. They, they say things over and over again. We don't trust you. You keep saying that it's not about the power. You keep saying that. But I just don't trust you. I can't trust you. I do not, gentlemen, trust you at all, Gunning, uh, Delaware's Gunning Bedford said. If you possess the power, you would abuse it. You're, and your abuse of it could not be checked. And what then would prevent you from exercising it to our destruction? Sooner than be ruined, he said, as the convention sucked its breath in, there are foreign powers who will take us by the hand. The small states are so frustrated and so angry and so ready to bolt that they are actually holding up in the convention the possibility of approaching foreign nations for alliances for, to protect them against the bigger states. People are appalled by this. The idea that we would fight this revolutionary war, throw off Britain, and then reach out to other foreign powers to allow them to have not just influence in the American continent, but essentially have vassal states on the American seaboard, is it's unthinkable. And yet, here's Gunning Bedford saying that if you don't give us what we want, equal representation in the Senate, we're going to walk and this is what we're going to do because it's what we're going to have to do to protect ourselves from you. I don't trust you. Madison is furious. He's just, he's lost it. How can this be, he wonders. Is He begins to do, in, in a moment of clarity, he actually starts looking at some things and saying, why don't they trust us? And he, he actually goes through the records and counts votes in Congress. And he comes to what to us seems blindingly obvious, but to Madison was an epiphany. There's this thought, and he tried to use this epiphany to argue with, this, with the smaller states. The smaller states assumed that the big states would vote together against the little states. But what Madison pointed out was, it really isn't big state, small state in Congress. It's regional. It's slave states versus not so much slave states. Slavery, he concluded, is the real dividing issue here. The actual divide, the actual argument here is slavery. Not in the sense of proportional, non-proportional, that sort of thing, but in the way that the states have their, their interests 
against each other is based on slavery. And so he actually comes up with an idea and presents to the convention this idea of how to solve this little problem. You ready? His idea is simply this. Representation in one branch should be according to the number of free inhabitants only, and the other branch according to the whole number counting the slaves as if free. By this arrangement, the southern scale would have the advantage in one house and the northern in the other. Hmm, that makes sense, huh? So much sense that the rest of the convention pretty much just ignores it. And they don't want to hear about slavery. They don't want to talk about slavery. They don't want to discuss slavery. They don't even want to admit that Madison is right in talking about the differences in the states and how they vote. But Madison remembers this. It's what I call his Madison moment. The moment he realizes what the real issue is in the sectarian issues between the states. It isn't what they say, economics. It isn't states' rats in the sense that they couch it in those terminology. It really is about slavery. And Madison, who is a slave owner himself, understands that his own dichotomy here, his own problem is that he believes in liberty, he wants freedom, he wants proportional government, but those are antithesis of his ideas in, those are the antithesis of his ideas of liberty and his ideas of slavery. He, he, how, he can't resolve the two together. And his influence begins markedly to fade, as does all of the Virginians. Their influence begins to fade out here. And we almost never really hear another idea from them again. Well, here and there, but not anything worthwhile. Sunday, July 1st, is a day of rest. It's a day when everybody sort of takes the day off. They do their Sunday things. They cool off a little bit. The Washington's letter is discovered when he writes about the demagogues of state rats. Even, even George Washington understands innately that this idea of putting our states ahead of the larger government, the larger national interests, are creating problems. And they're not putting the best interests of the nation that he himself fought, bled, and watched men die for. And he has a real problem with this. He often refers, several times refers to them as demagogues. And he understands what it's all about. And again, Washington himself, a slave-owning Virginian. There is a great deal of anger. There's a great deal of stress. There, Washington is furious and at the same time deeply hurt that Hamilton left yesterday, that he they left the convention. He writes to Hamilton, I, I wish you were here. I, why did you leave? I need you here. You, you have been a part of my staff. I need you here. And yet Hamilton is gone. People leaving are going to create some vacuums. And when this convention reconvenes on Monday, for one day, they're going to convene on Monday, and then they're going to take some time off for the 4th of July holiday. The 4th of July holiday in Philadelphia is celebrated like pretty much nowhere else. 
It's always been that way, and it always should be that way. And 1787 was no different. We're going to talk about that in a little more detail next week. We're going to take a break from the convention. We're going to talk about celebrating July 4th, Philadelphia style. The things that went on. Washington is deeply concerned. The convention is depressed. The arguments are really becoming harsh and difficult to deal with. And if Luther Martin stands up again and opens his mouth again, even the people who agree with him might just walk out. Already, Delaware and Bedford have raised the specter of allying themselves with the foreign nation. Problem is, how does little Delaware, what does little Delaware bring to an alliance with who? France? Britain? Spain? Portugal? Russia? What do they bring to that alliance? In essence, they swear allegiance to a larger monarchy who then has a foothold, a toehold, as it were, if it's Delaware, in the New World. Georgia is a, is a unique state. It's a small state, population-wise. It's a large state area-wise. But, it, but the, Georgia is the fastest growing of the colony of the states. Georgia expects to be a large state within a, just a few years. They're going to be a part of that large state cabal. And so they have an interest in proportional representation. They have favored proportional representation. In fact, their, their committee, not only honoring their agreement with, with Wilson of Pennsylvania over the Three-Fifths Compromise, they're voting for proportional representation because they're forward-looking. So they continue to vote 4040-4040 to cast Georgia's vote in favor of proportional representation. But now, things are shaking up. Few has gone to Congress. Fisher has gone to fight his duel. Hamilton, who is a well-known Federalist, a well-known favoritist of proportional representation, even though New York is a small state, has gone. And for some reason, remember this guy Daniel St. Thomas of, of Jennifer? Remember him? He, too, a very outspoken person in favor of proportional representation. Somehow or another, something happens on the morning of July 2nd, Monday, July 2nd, as the convention gathers, and Daniel St. Thomas of Jennifer is inexplicably delayed. He does not attend the convention that morning. We don't know why. No one has ever suggested any, well, they have suggested why, but nobody really knows why. He never says why he's not there, just that he was delayed. Hamilton is gone. New Hampshire has not shown up. Rhode Island hasn't sent anyone. But once again, on the morning of July 2nd, the debate begins. And this time, it's going to hit the fan and end with one final vote. And if the small states don't get their way, if they don't get equal representation in the Senate, and looking and counting votes, there's no way they can, they are going to walk. And this whole thing is going to be over.
So the stage is set. Do you understand how critical this moment is? This Monday, July 2nd, 1787, is interesting because it was just 11 years before that Monday, July, that July 2nd, it wasn't Monday that year, was the day that the Continental Congress agreed to declare independence from Britain. And actually, John Adams writes to his wife, July 2nd will be celebrated forever now as a national holiday. Well, it didn't quite work out that way, but there are dates in history that for some reason keep coming back around. Maybe as nexus points in, in history, but July 2nd now, this nation, the United States of America, faces the deciding moment. If you were to count votes beforehand, you would conclude that the large states are going to win again. Probably five to four, maybe six to five. Kind of depends. But they've got the votes. The debates begin again, and they are heated as they have been over the past few days. In fact, yesterday, or day before yesterday, James Madison, yes, that James Madison, so lost his cool at one point in the debates that he accused Connecticut, the entire state of Connecticut, of shirking their duty during the American Revolutionary War. He said that they didn't provide all the troops that they should have provided. And in the middle of the Constitutional Convention, in the middle of the debate over proportional representation or equal representation, Ellsbury has to stand up and defend his state's honor as to whether or not Connecticut did its role, played its part in the American Revolutionary War. Sitting in the chair in front, of course, is the commanding general of the entire Continental Army, and Ellsworth makes his appeal to Washington. General Washington, what say ye? Did Connecticut do its part or not? General Washington, in his wisdom and in his concern for the condition of the convention, didn't answer anybody. He just sat stone silent. Ellsbury, fuming, turns to Madison and says, I'm sure that the muster rolls will show that Connecticut provided even more troops than Virginia did. So there. That's how heated this thing had become. And on the morning of July 2nd, they're going to do this one more time. And this is it, folks. I, I know you know how the story kind of ends because you, you look at the document and you go, well, they must have figured it out. But it was that close. They sit down in each of the tables, and this is the way they do this. Each of the state delegates votes amongst itself. If they vote one way, a majority of them, then, they, then their vote goes that way. If they vote the other way, it goes the other way. If they tie, their vote is canceled. They get, they're essentially no vote. So already New Hampshire and Rhode Island are no votes. Follow? They begin to go around the room, voting as each state is expected to do. And of course, the vote is going exactly the way it's expected to go, except when they get to Maryland. And Daniel St. Thomas of Jennifer is not there. He, up to this point, has been the canceling vote in Maryland's process. Maryland has, at this, up to this point, been a no vote because they were tied on the issue of whether or not it should be proportional or equal. T 
Thomas, Daniel St. Thomas of Jennifer, whose name I just absolutely love, continues to vote for proportional representation in canceling out its small state vote and thus essentially taking Maryland out of the system. But he's not here and nobody knows why. And so Maryland goes from no vote to equal representation in the Senate. This is stunning. This is unexpected. And yet, at the same time, not a concern because there are still other states to vote. South Carolina, of course, votes for proportional representation in, in keeping with its agreement with Mr. Wilson of Pennsylvania. But then the eyes of the convention turn to Georgia. Major Pierce is gone to fight his duel. William Few has gone to Congress. Up to this point, Georgia has voted 4-0 each time to support proportional representation. And indeed, the first delegate votes for proportional representation. And all eyes turn to Abraham Baldwin, hitherto pretty much an unknown, expecting him fully to vote for proportional representation. Perhaps what they don't realize, though, is that Abraham Baldwin is not a native Georgian. In fact, very few people are, but he is definitely not a native Georgian. He's actually a native of Connecticut, a small state. And he's also a pretty smart guy. He's listened to everything that's gone on, all the arguments, all the debates, and he's heard the challenge. If we don't get this, we're going to walk. We don't trust you. We're going to walk. If, this, if the small states lose this, there's no further discussions. Nothing more can be done. If the small states win this, though, or at least the large states don't win this, then the conversation and the convention can continue. And Abraham Baldwin, in one of the moments of American history that should be memorialized in paintings and on coins and on stamps and in museums but isn't. With no explanation, he doesn't utter a word, he never says why, changes his vote to equal representation in the Senate, and cancels Georgia's vote. The vote ends in a 5-5-2 tie. Well, five, it ends in a 5-5-2 tie, which means that the big states don't get they don't get the proportional representation. The, the small states haven't won, but they haven't lost. Hands immediately flying up. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? And at that moment, Daniel St. Thomas of Jennifer walks in the door. A thousand pardons, sir. I'm, I was unaccountably delayed. I apologize profusely. Rufus King of Massachusetts, a large state, knows that St. Thomas is, of Jennifer is, a, is, is in his pocket, and if he can get Maryland's vote taken out of it, then they win at 5-4. He immediately demands a recount. We want a re-vote of this, and since it's unclear, although perhaps not as unclear as people wanted it to be, what the convention should do, what the rules are, all eyes turn to General Washington. General Washington favors proportional representation. He's already 
labeled those who continue to fight for equal states' votes as demagogues. And it's clear that he opposes their position. But he also understands that if the, if the small states don't win, they're going to walk out of this convention today when they adjourn for the, for the, for the 4th of July holiday without having accomplished anything. The entire nation is expectant. They don't want to have prayers before the sessions because they're afraid of demoralizing the American people. All of this is going through Washington's head. And he has to make the decision. Do I hold a revote? At which point, St. Thomas of Jennifer's vote probably carries the day for the large states. Or do I say no? And General Washington, against his own wishes, exactly what he accuses the demagogues of doing, putting their own interests ahead of the country, General Washington, in perhaps one of the least known moments of his amazing career, puts the nation ahead of his own beliefs and his own opinions and says there will be no revote. The vote has been taken. We're done. And the vote stands. Again, the smaller states haven't won, but they haven't lost either. A suggestion is made. Let us put together a select committee to work out a compromise over this 4th of July holiday. The committee is chosen in a very unique manner. It is chosen by popular vote rather than by appointment. And oddly enough, this committee, which will be headed by Benjamin Franklin, consists of men who favor the small state position. Madison is just absolutely apoplectic. He is furious. I have observed, sir, that committees only delay business, and if you appoint one from each state, we shall have it in the whole force of state prejudices. The motion of the gentleman from South Carolina can as well be decided here as in committee. Madison, again, is overruled. And this committee is put together. And over the next few days, over the next day, actually, they will meet to hammer out a compromise that will be presented back to the committee after the 4th of July holiday. I don't think we understand sometimes how close a moment this was. I don't think that we fully grasp what George Washington did in once again putting his country again ahead of his own feelings. Men like Abraham Baldwin, who are unknown to history, unless you're a Georgian, you have no clue who they are. And even if you're from Baldwin, Georgia, you still probably don't know. He's known as an agricultural guy, a farmer. And to this day, no one knows why Daniel St. Thomas of Jennifer was late. No one knows. But what if Daniel St. Thomas of Jennifer understood that if he voted his conscience, there would be no country? But if he went walkabout, had a smoke, talked to a friend, accidentally, air quote, air quote, missed the vote, he could do a greater service to his country by not participating. And on those simple things, 
the entire history of our nation changes on one Monday morning in 1787. Constitution Thursday is a feature segment on Plausibly Live, the official podcast of The Dave Bowman Show, a Slippery Fish Entertainment production for the Podcast 99 Network, copyright MMXV, all rights reserved. For more information, log on to constitutionthursday.com.